the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. On the next several podcasts, we have Dr. Rawad Hamsi. Dr. Hamsi is an assistant professor of the Department of Anesthesiology at Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Hospital and specializes in regional anesthesia and acute pain management. Welcome back, Dr. Hamsey. Thank you. A couple of more things before we get to part two of multimodal analgesia. You mentioned muscle relaxants, and I do prescribe quite a few of those, acute back pain, you know, muscle strains, whatever. And you, you liked methocarbamol as a viable choice because it had less sedation and tizanidine in younger folks. Do you use these perioperatively outside of, say, acute pain? And you had mentioned a, a caution, a word of caution about using muscle relaxers with a total hip, and I was hoping you might go over some of that. In general, the class of muscle relaxants as a whole can be helpful in certain patient scenarios where they come in. For example, you mentioned back pain. That's a common arena where you have a dysregulation in the tone of the muscles. It's supposed to be a protective spinal cord reflex whereby the muscles tighten to prevent further injury. But as we know, that's it's rarely actually protective for these patients, whether it's from arthritis whether it's from a back injury or just chronic degenerative joint joint disease um, in the back and elsewhere. So it seems to be variable who gets muscle spasms as part of their arthritis or part of their injury, but it seems to be higher risk, of course, with the back injuries and back arthritis, but also the hip arthritis patient population seem to be, because of the the larger muscle groups, a lot of the pelvic girdle muscles involved and, and the compensation in gait from these patients with hip pain, how they adapt to walk around and ambulate with a dysfunctional hip joint seems to put them at higher risk for for muscle spasms, both at rest outside or perioperatively as well. So our patients here at our joint replacement hospital, typically we will we'll use, as you said, methocarbamol because it's the least sedating. And we know we're going to be giving them sedating medications aside from the muscle relaxants as well. So we try to go for a, a basically the least sedating medicine we can find, which seems to be methocarbamol. We usually will start with that one, especially in the elderly. Um, it seems to be well tolerated. It seems to not have many of the sedating uh, side effects of the other medications in the class. But as an outpatient prescriber, I'm sure you, you've seen and prescribed cyclobenzaprine or flexoril. Tizanidine is a common one we use both in and out of the hospital. But it seems to be more sedating and more effect on blood pressure because of its activity through the alpha adrenergic receptors. Uh, interestingly, tizanidine, even if they don't have muscle spasms, because it acts in the spinal cord at the alpha 2 receptors, as we said before, that alone produces analgesia by blocking some of those afferent pain signals. So Xandine I like to use in young patients who I know will tolerate the hemodynamic changes, tolerate a little bit of the the lower blood pressure, a little bit of the sedation, and not be in danger of respiratory depression when we give them opioids. Cyclobenzaprine, we find a lot of patients are on that as an outpatient, and I'm okay continuing it if we have the discussion perioperatively and it doesn't seem to make them too sleepy when they take it as an outpatient. Otherwise, I usually will switch them to, as I said, methocarbamol is our preferred agent here. I do want to make a special mention of diazepam. 
just because it's a little bit of an outlier in the class, uh, it, it has a very potent muscle relaxation. It does act directly in the spinal cord. It is a benzodiazepine though. And so it does have increased synergism with respiratory depression. When you give patients who are taking opioids an additional benzo, it, it seems to compound the respiratory depression. It, it puts them much higher risk of dose limiting side effects of overdose of respiratory depression. And so there, there has been shown a 10 to 15 10 to 15 fold increased risk of death in patients who are prescribed opioids with benzos, which a lot of patients are compared to just opioids. So while I do sometimes use diazepam, Valium, I'll use it, for example, one dose IV. Uh, if the patient, despite what we're giving them, has muscle spasms, it's a very fast acting, very sedating, but very potent, you know, antispastic medication. So I, we do still use that selectively. We'll sometimes use cyclobenzaprine. We use uh, tazanidine, as I said, and then probably the most commonly I'm using methocarbamol, especially for hip, uh, hip replacement patients tend to have the worst muscle spasms. Last one before we get to part two of the multimodal analgesia, mm-hmm. glucocorticoids. And you talked about Decadron perioperatively. You know, several of our arthroplasty surgeons want to wait a length of time, you know, three months or more or less after an intraarticular injection before doing an arthroplasty. How are oral glucocorticoids a safe choice? So that's an interesting question. It's one that's still being researched actively in the literature. When I looked this up, it seems like most of the data from large studies, there's one particularly recent large meta-analysis, I believe from last year, that did show an increased risk of prosthetic joint infection of anywhere from 16% increased risk to 47% increased risk in patients who had an intraarticular injection uh, before the joint replacement surgery. So pretty notable increased risk depending on timing, again, varying anywhere from 16 to 47% over those who hadn't had um, intraarticular injections. And in this particular study, they looked at pooled patients from both hyaluronic acid as well as steroids. So it wasn't just intraarticular steroids, although that is obviously the most common, um, at least in this study. It does have a significant risk on infection. It is a valid reason to ask patients to avoid or give them uh, a reasoning as to why it may not be wise to give them a steroid injection if surgery is planned. Looking at overall the the PJI risk of infection after total joint arthroplasty, it's around 1% to 2%. But if you're considering something that has that robust of a change, it is something worth noting and and maybe changing practice. So I I totally believe your teams are hoping to avoid uh, surgery in the immediate period, you know, three months, six months, some even 12 months out before a total joint arthroplasty. That thing, you know, that that aside, it is a 16 to 47% increased risk from the one to 2% baseline. So it could be anywhere from one to two and a half. So it, it is an increased risk. And we obviously, given how devastating that complication is and how it affects the, the care of the patient ongoing, requiring revision surgery, antibiotic spacers, it is important to note, but we consider the intraarticular injection quite different. And indeed, it seems to have uh, different data for following patients who have received systemic opioids. We've used in anesthesia dexamethasone and other steroids for a long time uh, for reduction of postoperative nausea and vomiting, especially when it's associated with general anesthetics from the inhaled anesthetic gas. And so it has robust data for reduction of, of post-op nausea and vomiting with that. 
It also has more recently been shown to directly cause analgesia. And it seems to be high doses of steroids that cause analgesia. So one milligram per kilogram, sorry, 0.1 milligram per kilogram of dexamethasone up to a max of what we're giving here, up to a max of 10 milligrams, which is a pretty robust dose. And they've looked at this in this in the literature, looking at meta-analyses, looking at patients presenting for joint arthroplasty who received perioperative steroids, whether that was IV corticosteroids or whether that was oral steroids. Both cases, it seems like there's no increased signal for prosthetic joint infection. And it's probably multifactorial. I, I think looking at the etiology, it seems to be a duration effect. Um, when we're talking about dexamethasone, it seems to be several days of anti-inflammatory effect, so reduced response to infection, maybe for a few days. When we're talking about intraarticular steroids, we see patients who have an improved pain score for months and months, um, and indeed it does seem to have a differential uptake. So I can't say for sure why but it does seem that the literature, multiple studies have looked at systemic steroids, not, not as deleterious, not as risky for prosthetic joint infections perioperatively as the intraarticular steroids are, which is reassuring because a lot of our, you know, a lot of our patients do get perioperative steroids to help with analgesia because it is an anti-inflammatory agent. So thankfully, it seems like that practice is supported in the literature. Perfect. Great answer. Thanks for looking that up. We wanted sure. to talk about NMDA antagonist or NMDA receptor blockers, and you had mentioned a couple of examples being ketamine and methadone. And just a, a little brief point from me, back in the day when we were a smaller group and I had to go to the ED to reduce a fracture or something, the ED doc would give the patient ketamine. And, mm -hmm. you know, at the time I, I knew what it did, but I didn't know that it was an alternative for treating chronic pain or even uh, CRPS. And mm -hmm. so I was hoping you might explain how these drugs work and when you might incorporate them into your treatment regimens. And uh, also, if you, if you use methadone, how, how or when do you prescribe it? Sure. Let's talk about a little bit about NMDA receptor antagonists in terms of the most common one we'll talk about is ketamine. So you alluded to one of its uses for sedation in the emergency department. We also use it for chronic and acute pain in the hospital. Um, it's in many ways just a wonder drug. For example, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, it is used for full anesthesia, surgical anesthesia. One of the benefits is it, it doesn't depress the respiratory drive and it doesn't ablate the protective airway reflexes like a lot of our other anesthetic drugs do. So you can have a patient spontaneously breathing um, and protecting their own airway against secretions, coughing if it, if it comes down to that, and breathing spontaneously while particularly painful surgery is ongoing, or procedure, in this case, setting a fracture or dislocation. And uh, indeed, it's used in that realm quite a bit. For analgesia, however, uh, it does seem to have a potent blockade of the NMD receptors in the spinal cord, most importantly, where they're associated with the pain pathways and how they, they mediate the response to the pain pathways. They usually amp up the NMDA receptor firing, amps up those pain pathways and is specifically implicated when we talk about central sensitization, the central nervous system becoming more sensitive to those afferent signals. So blocking those NMDA receptors seems to treat some of the hyperalgesia that is associated with chronic pain or associated with chronic inflammation or opioid treatments even. So 
We commonly use ketamine to augment analgesia. Um, most commonly, this is in patients who have chronic pain, who are on narcotics at baseline. We do have to be a little conscious of the psychomimetic effects. Um, and I, I know you've probably heard of the K-hole when patients are on ketamine. Um, there can be quite bad dysphoria, nightmares, hallucinations at higher doses. Typically, we're using sub-anesthetic doses. So low doses, it seems to impact analgesia significantly. Depending on the age of the patient, their other comorbidities, their, their liver function, sometimes even at lower doses, they might have psychomimetic effects. And it usually is pretty mild at low doses. For example, um, just disturbing dreams or seeing things that aren't there, but not necessarily scary. And it can be as bad as uh, hallucinations and nightmares at higher doses. We typically use ketamine for those patients on narcotics with chronic pain at baseline because it does reduce some of their hyperalgesia and it, it affects analgesia in a receptor that's not related to the myopia receptor at all. Getting to methadone, I don't really, I try not to prescribe methadone commonly because I know when I start it in the acute pain realm, it's going to be a little tough to find someone who's going to want to take on that patient as an outpatient and continue to prescribe methadone without knowing them first. And, and it is a very dangerous drug in the outpatient setting. Um, it has been implicated in quite a few opioid overdose deaths. I think it's now being overtaken by fentanyl, which most of that is illicit fentanyl being taken without prescription. But I believe, you know, in general, methadone has been implicated in a lot of overdose deaths because of its long half-life. It is obviously a, uh, an opioid, but it has NMDA antagonism and helps through other pathways, which is why it's used commonly. Historically, it was used a lot in chronic pain, but also in uh, patients with opioid use disorder. So you may see patients with a prior history of heroin use or, or opioids, opioid misuse on methadone, although the, the better data supports buprenorphine for that use. I will commonly use methadone in patients on very high doses of opioids presenting for surgery, whether or not it's you know, usually not total joints, but I will use it, for example, big back surgeries, patients coming in on a lot of opioids. It has a long half-life, and I know they're going to be admitted for at least a day afterwards, so we can, we can watch them, monitor their respiratory function, and, and make sure um, it, it seems to be well-tolerated, but make sure they're not having any undue respiratory depression while they're in the hospital. Um, and it does seem to have, because of the long half-life, it does seem to have an Im improved um, pain score the first and second post-operative day. Okay, that's great information. Dr. Hamzik, thank you for being on today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Please tune in next week for more on multimodal analgesia in the orthopedic patient. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review. I'm excited to tell our audience that Denver registration is now open for our 22nd annual meeting. This is our annual fall meeting and will be August 22nd through the 26th at the Sheridan Denver Downtown Hotel. Come and join us for some CME and get away for a little while in the Mile High City. Stop by the desk and say hello. I look forward to seeing you there.